Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 57. Episode 57. This is our Heinz episode. Heinz. This episode is brought to you by Heinz. Mmm. Tasty. (laughs) So (laughs) what... Happy New Year. So whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is early Friday morning, January 20th, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Happy New Year, my tools. Happy New Year, my people. Um, Yeah. This is the first episode of 2023. Um, I took a little bit of a sabbatical. I always take a, a little bit of a break between New Year's and the first week or two of January. Uh, and this time, it lasted a little bit longer. But hey, we're back. We're back in better than ever. We're back in almost as good as we were before. <laughs> and if you're hearing that... um that hum in the background. That's a Kubota tractor, is what that is. And I hope it doesn't show up on the pod, but maybe it will, because this is how we do things. Have I mentioned that I am in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama? And we keep it real. Sometimes you might hear rainfall on the roof of the shed. My neighbor's dog barking. Or today a Kubota tractor, not a John Deere. It's a Kubota. And usually when we record the show, it's at night when the world is still and quiet. But sometimes we have early morning recording sessions like today. And you get to hear all the wonderful things going on adjacent to my backyard in Alabama. I hope that you had a Merry Christmas. I hope that uh, you are having a good start to 2023. I hope it's better for you than 2022. And somebody drag racing. I hope it's better for you than the last couple years have been. It has been a lot the last couple years. And uh, I hope that your New Year's resolutions are, are going well. Have you stuck to them after 20 days? Have you almost made them into a habit? It takes 21 days to make a habit. And if you've stuck with it this far, then hey, you've got one more day to go. 
you can do it. Uh, Something that we always like to do on the first episode of the year, if you've been following this show for a while, uh, and this is our third year. This is the start of our third year in the shed, so thank you for joining us for year three. But we always do predictions for the year. We do predictions for the year, and then on either the last episode of that year or the first of the next, we like to review and see how we did the year before, as well as make some new predictions. So let's take a quick trip down memory lane. These were our In the Shed with Wes Anderson predictions for 2022. Number one, Kanye (laughs) reunites with Kim. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. In fact, I'm, I'm very, very much less confident now that it ever will happen. Um, Kanye has had a year. Kim dated Pete Davidson. And apparently Kanye West has married an employee. So that one did not come true. Prediction number two, someone featured in our theme song will come on the show as a guest. That could have been Hank Hill from Arlen, Texas. That could have been Alex Jones. It could have been uh, Mike Leach. Rest in, in peace, Mike Leach. It could have been George Bush or uh, Barack Obama or a whole host of other people who are in our... Steve Martin, people who are in our theme song. Um, Chance the Rapper, Lecrae. And I have a single one of them in the shed in 2022. Uh, can't say I didn't try. Won't tell you who I reached out to. One day it's going to happen, but in 2022... That prediction did not come true either. Number three, we find life on another planet. Over three. Number four, Aaron Rodgers wins it all and decides to stay in Green Bay after all. Again, no. He did decide to stay in Green Bay. So um, maybe I can get half credit. I'm, I'm the teacher. I'm the one grading the paper. I give myself half credit. So we at .5 correct so far. Prediction number five, Republicans perform well in the midterms, but the Dems do better than expected, and we were on target. We were on target like Robin Hood. We were on target like a a soccer mom, Um, because they like to go, they spend a lot of time and and, and money in Target. Um, It's a grocery, it's a chain, Uh, it's a, anyway... We were dead on with that prediction. Uh, Back when people were saying there was going to be a red wave, Republicans were going to take the House and the Senate, uh, we told you to slow your roll. We told you that Republicans would do fine in the midterms, but the Dems would do better than expected. We were right on 1.5 predictions correct. Number six, Kevin Hart stars in a movie about aliens. I was just trying to will that into existence, my babies. (laughs) I think Kevin Hart is hysterical. I don't understand the hate, and I would love to see him in a comedy involving extraterrestrials. But in 2022, that did not happen. We still at 1.5, correct? Number seven, Ted Cruz announces another run for president, and that has not happened yet. It's going to happen. Ted Cruz is trying to set himself up to run, and he will run for president in 2024 but he did not announce yet so we did not get that one correct either we're still at 1.5 prediction eight 
the Warriors win the NBA championship and Steph Curry finally gets his finals MVP. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, we predicted that before the Warriors looked like a title team again, with Klay Thompson still not having come back from injury. I just saw things coming together for the Warriors, and I thought that Steph Curry would play well in the finals and finally get that finals MVP that had evaded him, and it happened. We were correct. Uh, the Warriors defeated the Boston Celtics to win the NBA championship last season. Steph Curry scored 43 points in Boston Garden. He ended up winning the finals MVP. We are at 2.5 correct predictions. Prediction number nine, Joe Exotic is released from prison. Um, no. No, he's still, he's he's still there. Uh, Carol Baskin may not be joining him, that Carol Baskin. But Joe Exotic is still in prison. And number ten, in the shed with Wes Anderson gets its first ever advertising partner. No. No, we big independent. We in the shed. I I ain't got no sponsors. I would love to have one. We actually in a position now where we could uh we could maybe help you out. And we reached out to a few people in 2022, but we have not yet found our first advertising sponsor. But remember, today, this episode 57 is brought to you by Heinz. Heinz. Mmm. Tasty. I hope I don't face uh, litigation for, for that uh, that claim there. Um, but we got 2.5 of our 2022 predictions. We got 2.5 predictions correct. And I think that's pretty remarkable. That's 25%, my babies. Quick math. That makes me almost psychic. Okay. That puts me up there with Madam Cleo. All right. Um, I don't think she got 25% of her predictions correct. 25%. We looked into the future and we told you a couple things <laughs> that were going to happen in 2022. And uh, that's the second year in a row that we got 2.5 predictions correct. So how about that? We we consistent. If nothing else in this year, we are, we are consistent. Uh, so let's take a look at our predictions for 2023. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be a big year, not just for this show and podcast, but for all of you out there listening. This is your year, okay? You're going to have a great year. It's going to be a good day. All right. You're going to have some things happen. You're going to overcome those things. You're going to reach your goals. You're going to make progress. It's all about incremental progress. Don't measure yourself against other people. Measure yourself against your own aptitude and ability. Are you performing up to the ability that you possess? And using the resources that you already possess to make the most of them to reach your goals. That's what you should focus on in 2023. So here are our In the Shed with Wes Anderson predictions for 2023. Number one, Nicolas Cage plays Nicolas Cage for a second time. That's right. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. But in that film, Nicolas Cage played Nicolas Cage. And I gotta say, he was very good at it. Um, I think he played himself in a movie far better than I would play myself in a movie. I play myself on this podcast, but he played himself in a movie and it went very well. 
And I don't know how this will work, but I just I just am, am predicting that in 2023, Nicolas Cage will play himself in a movie again. Prediction number two, In the Shed with Wes Anderson surpasses 10,000 downloads this year. I think we can do it. We grew a lot last year. We're over 6,000 downloads. We've done the show for two years, which puts us at a a small average of about 3,000 downloads a year. But this is our year in 2023, okay? We're going to grow exponentially in comparison to what we did last year. We're reaching people in all 50 states and all over the world. We're going to surpass 10,000 downloads this year. I'm going ahead and I'm calling my shot like Babe Ruth. Prediction number three we find life on another planet. Um, it's got to happen eventually, right? If, uh, if I just predict that every year, eventually I'm going to be correct. And this is the year. 2023 is the year that we find life on another planet. Prediction number four, the Lakers part ways with LeBron James or Anthony Davis. Uh, the Lakers are underperforming. The big three of LeBron, AD, and Russell Westbrook does not work. They have another head coach. They don't have a a deep rotation. Um, They may not make the play-in tournament, okay? Uh, Something has to give in Los Angeles, and I think that either during the season or at season's end, the Lakers will part ways with either LeBron, who may leave, or Anthony Davis, who they may trade. Prediction number five, Donald Trump is not charged with a crime this year. I do not believe that it will happen until it happens. Prediction number six, Elon Musk moves on from running Twitter. Elon did a Twitter poll uh, a while back and asked if he should step down as CEO, and Twitter said yes. The Twitter user said yes. He says that when he finds a suitable CEO, he will step down. I think that he will simply because he'll, he'll get bored with being in charge of the platform at some point. He may still be the owner, but I don't think he'll run the day-to-day operations at some point in 2023. Prediction number seven, the war in Ukraine continues. Eventually, something has to give in the war between Ukraine and Russia. It's, It's become a war of attrition. Neither side seems willing to do the things necessary to get to a place of peace. And I hope that this prediction is wrong, but I'm predicting that the war continues on throughout the year. Prediction number eight. Alabama does not win the college football playoff this upcoming season. So Georgia has won two in a row. That's two years in a row that Alabama has not won the national championship, something that those who root for the Tide are not used to under Nick Saban during his reign. And this next year, they'll be very good like they always are, but they're replacing a quarterback They're losing a ton of NFL talent again. Georgia is an absolute juggernaut. USC is on their way up. Ohio State and Michigan are formidable teams. The SEC is the best conference in college football. Tennessee is experiencing a resurgence. I just don't see Alabama winning the college football playoffs this coming season. Prediction number nine, Dr. Fauci. Oh, yes, Dr. Fauci. A Dr. Fauci prediction on the show. Look at me. Dr. Fauci appears as a guest on the Joe Rogan Experience. (laughs) And just like the Kevin Hart uh, alien movie of 2022 that did not happen, this is me willing something into existence. Because can you imagine, can you imagine Anthony Fauci smoking a cigar 
and sipping whiskey while being grilled by Joe Rogan. It will be entertaining. It will be entertaining. Whatever you think of Anthony Fauci, whether you listen to the Joe Rogan experience or not, that would be must-see TV, must-listen podcasting, and I would tune in for sure. And prediction number 10, I, your hum, I almost said horrible, oh my gracious, have some self-love, Wes Anderson. I, your humble, not horrible, your humble correspondent, a true journalist, uh, you said that, I didn't say that, you said that, will be a guest on three other podcasts this year. How many do I have lined up right now? Zero. Zero. But I've had a couple of invites. Uh, haven't got anything worked out. Uh, nothing to announce yet. But I'm predicting that I will be a guest on three other podcasts in 2023. So there you have it. Those are our 10 predictions for 2023. Nicholas Cage plays Nicholas Cage for a second time. In the Shed with Wes Anderson surpasses 10,000 downloads. We find life on another planet. The Lakers part ways with LeBron James or Anthony Davis. Donald Trump is not charged with a crime. Elon Musk moves on from running Twitter. The war in Ukraine continues. Alabama does not win the college football playoffs. Dr. Fauci appears on the Joe Rogan Experience, and I am a guest on three other podcasts. What do you think of those predictions? What did I get right? Where am I off base? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear from you. And I would love to hear what your predictions are for 2023. What is it that you expect to happen? Uh, what, what do you think is going to unfold in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal? Send me your predictions and I will read them on the show. I will read them on the air next episode. I will get your predictions out there, my people. All right, it's enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections. Our humble little show is being listened to across the globe, 32 countries in total and counting now. We are, of course, being listened to all over this great country of ours in all 50 states, but we also continue to be incredibly popular in India for some reason, uh, which now makes up just over 42% of our listening audience. Hey, we love you, India. For some, India is almost half of our listening audience. And when it gets to 60%, I'm moving my family to India. <laughs> Just don't tell my wife. Um, no, but if you are listening and you're in India, send an email into the show. I would love to hear how you found us, what it is that you enjoy about this show. Uh, my boy Ramesh, I haven't heard from you in half of a year. Email the show and check in if you're still listening. And if you own a business in India, it might be a good time to advertise with us. It's the most affordable advertising you will ever find. And we're big in India. After the U.S. and India, our top 10 countries where we're listened to includes the U.K., France, where we continue to experience steady growth, Australia, Mexico, Canada, Ireland, Singapore, and Germany round out the top 10 and I want to give a special shout out to the nation of Guatemala, where we have 11 new listeners there this week. Thanks for tuning in, Guatemala. I have been to your country, and I had a wonderful time. Got to go there, and uh, I worked in an orphanage for a week. I uh, volunteered in the orphanage and malnutrition center, did a little tourism, uh, did some, some shopping at a local uh, mart, 
uh, saw a village, met some people. It was phenomenal. One of the most incredible and eye-opening experiences of my life. Thank you for listening to the show, Guatemala. We're currently averaging more listeners per episode than ever before, which is still true even though we haven't done a show in almost a month. And that's thanks to you, our listeners. And, and, we're about to surpass 7,000 followers on Twitter. You can follow us there at In the Shed 4. We've already surpassed 6,000 downloads. We ended 2022 by hitting a modest but exciting milestone for us, and we're starting 2023 checking in at around 6,200 total downloads of the show. Not a big deal to most, but we're growing this thing slowly but steadily. As our profile and audience continue to grow, I'm excited to bring you even more unique content that you can't find anywhere else. We bring you the news that matters in a different way. We're truly an independent news show. We got more conversations that matter coming your way this year. I'll be doing several guest spots on other shows in the near future, at least three. And we've got a Patreon, uh, a Patreon that hopefully will be launched by the time this episode airs. No episode of the show will ever be hidden behind a paywall. That's just not how we do things here, but it will be an affordable way to connect with the show between episodes and help offset production costs. And we've got some paranormal-themed t-shirts that we'll be listing for sale as well. Mothman, UFO, Bigfoot, DB Cooper, and JFK-themed t-shirts. Keep up with our Twitter page to order those. They're comfortable, they feature fun designs, and are an excellent way to support the show. We've got a great show for you today, but first, let's get to some listener emails. Our first email comes from Sean from Brooklyn, New York, who writes, Are you keeping up with the news? What say you about President Biden's mishandling of classified documents? Hey, Sean, thank you for writing into the show. Of course I'm keeping up with the news, Sean. I am a journalist. I am a journalist. And... Mostly, I'm just staying tuned to see what happens with this story and what developments there are. We don't really have all of the information. Uh, we don't really know how much is out there, what it can, what information it contained. I don't think this is what most Republicans have been claiming it is, uh, trying to draw a direct line from uh, the way that Donald Trump was talked about when hundreds of classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago. It doesn't seem to be the exact same situation. However, however... This is also not what the Democrats are claiming, that you can just write this off and it was just a couple of pieces of paper and it's not a big deal, uh, because it was a very big deal when the shoe was on the other foot. So um, this isn't a nothing burger. It may not be a quarter pounder either, and uh, we're going to stay tuned to see what happens with it. I do think it's worth being investigated, as do most of American people. A poll showed that uh, whether Democrat or Republican, most people wanted this to be investigated and for the truth to come out. And I'm enjoying a conspiracy theory. You know, we talk conspiracies on this show. I'm enjoying a conspiracy theory that the way this has been mishandled, how it wasn't announced right away, um, how news keeps trickling out little by little. uh, There's a conspiracy theory that says that that is intentional and it's being mishandled intentionally by Democrats who wish to keep Joe Biden from being able to run for president again because the man is old. Because he's really old. And they want to get new blood in there. They don't want to lose an election in 2024. Don't know if that's true. That's just what people are saying on the interwebs. Thank you for writing into the show. 
Our next email comes from Lori from Louisville, Kentucky, who says, On one of your last episodes of 2022, you read a headline from Alex Jones's website. For the life of me, I can't understand why you would ever read a headline from InfoWars on your show. Why platform hate? Lori, thank you for writing into the show. Thank you for listening to the show. Go Wildcats, Big Blue Nation. Had to throw that out there. Sorry for what your basketball team is experiencing so far this season. We don't platform hate on this program. That's not something that we do. Uh, But something that we do do... (laughs) Something that we... How do you say that, though? Something that we are doing... I'll say it that way. I I can't say I'm too immature. Something that we are doing on a, a, a weekly basis, every time we have a show, is that we read news headlines before jumping into the political stories that we think are important of the day we read some headlines and we read headlines from uh, very far right news organizations from some middle of the road news organizations and from some very left-leaning news organizations and the reason why we're doing that is not to promote those things as truth not to quote unquote platform whoever it was that wrote the article or whatever website it was found on But just to give you a snapshot of what is being said right now across the political spectrum. Because what I I found is that so many people live in a vacuum. They live in an echo chamber. They only watch their preferred source of cable news. They only read their preferred source of written news. And they don't know what is being said on the other side. They don't have a, a clear view of the world of politics from every angle. And so we try to help combat that on this show. We're not a right-leaning show. We're not a left-leaning show. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. I voted for, for people on both sides before. I did not vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. So we try to give a snapshot of the whole spectrum. And that's why on occasion uh, we may share a headline from somewhere like InfoWars because that website gets read by a ton of people. There are a ton of people that believe everything that is posted on there. And we want you to know what it is that is being said. Thank you for listening to the show. And finally, Michael from Birmingham writes, Wes, I enjoy that you cover not just politics or world news, but news from around the state as well. Your perspective is always honest, rarely partisan, and full of compassion. Keep it up. Hey, you just made my year, Michael. You just made my year. 2023 is going to be a great year. And Michael took time to ride into the show and to say some nice words. So thank you, Michael. I I do try to cover news that is local as well as uh, national and international. And so sometimes we're going to have stories about the state of Alabama. This is where I'm planted. This is where I've grown up. This is my neck of the woods. Again, I'm recording a show from a shed in the backyard of my home in... Alabama. That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics. And Lori, let's hit the headlines. Chris Christie blames Trump for Democrats winning and winning, writes the Daily Wire. Report reveals why Biden's White House is less concerned about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover than others, reports the Independent Journal Review. 
Freed Russian arms dealer joins Nationalist Party, says the BBC. From the Washington Post, Washington's mistakes have worsened the fentanyl crisis. And finally, China's alliance with Saudi Arabia signals a potential shift in global order. And that is according to Vox. Our first story in the world of politics, captured, killed, or compromised, CIA admits to losing dozens of informants. Top American counterintelligence officials warned every CIA station and base around the world about troubling numbers of informants recruited from other countries to spy for the United States being captured or killed, people familiar with the matter said. The message in an unusual top-secret cable said that the CIA's counterintelligence mission center had looked at dozens of cases in the last several years involving foreign informants who had been killed, arrested, or most likely compromised. Although brief, the cable laid out the specific number of agents executed by rival intelligence agencies as closely held detail that counterintelligence officials typically do not share in such cables. The cable highlighted the struggle the spy agency is having as it works to recruit spies around the world in different operating environments. In recent years, adversarial intelligence services in countries such as Russia, China, Iran, and Pakistan have been hunting down the CIA's sources and in some cases turning them into double agents. Acknowledging that recruiting spies is a high-risk business, the cable raised issues that have plagued the agency in recent years, including poor tradecraft, being too trusting of sources, underestimating foreign intelligence agencies, and moving too quickly to recruit informants while not paying enough attention to potential counterintelligent risks, a problem the cable called placing mission over security. The large number of compromised informants in recent years also demonstrates the growing prowess of other countries in employing innovations like biometric scans, facial recognition, artificial intelligence, and hacking tools to track the movements of CIA officers in order to discover their sources. While the CIA has many ways to collect intelligence for its analysts to craft into briefings for policymakers, networks of trusted human informants around the world remain the centerpiece of its efforts the kind of intelligence that the agency is supposed to be the best in the world at collecting and analyzing. Recruiting new informants, former officials say, is how the CIA's case officers, its frontline spies, earn promotions. Case officers are not typically promoted for running good counterintelligence operations such as figuring out if an informant is really working for another country. The agency has devoted much of its attention for the last two decades on terrorist threats and the conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, but improving intelligence collection on adversarial powers, both great and small, is once again the centerpiece of the CIA's agenda, particularly as policymakers demand more insight into China and Russia. The loss of informants, former officials said, is not a new problem, but the cable demonstrated the issue is more urgent than is publicly understood. Not anymore, because we getting it out to the public. We getting it out there to the public. It's going to be understood now. Have no fear. CIA. The warning, according to those who have read it, was primarily aimed at frontline agency officers, the people involved most directly in the recruiting and vetting of sources. The cable reminded CIA case officers to focus not just on recruiting sources, but also on security issues including vetting informants and invading adversarial intelligence agencies. Among the reasons for the cable, according to people familiar with the document, was to prod CIA case officers to think about steps that they can take on their own to do a better job of managing informants. Former officials said that there is to be more focus on security and counterintelligence among both senior leaders and frontline personnel, especially when it comes to recruiting informants, which which CIA officers call agents. 
No one at the end of the day is being held responsible when things go south with an agent, said Douglas London, a former agency operative. Sometimes there are things beyond our control, but there are also occasions of sloppiness and neglect, and people in senior positions are never held responsible. Mr. London said he was unaware of the cable, but his new book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, argues that the CIA's shift toward covert action and paramilitary operations undermine traditional espionage that relies on securely recruiting and handling agents. Worldwide messages to CIA stations and bases that note troubling trends or problems or even warnings about counterintelligence problems are not unheard of, according to former officials. Still, the memo outlining a specific number of informants arrested or killed by adversarial powers is an unusual level of detail, one that signals the importance of the current problems. Former officials said that counterintelligence officials typically like to keep such details secret, even from the broad CIA workforce. Asked about the memo, a CIA spokeswoman declined to comment. So, the CIA sent a secret cable out here to everybody saying, uh, see, what had happened was they sent out a secret cable to everybody saying, we losing a lot of informants. Um, some of them have been arrested. Some of them have been killed. But a whole lot of them have just gone off our radar. They've dropped off our map. And we don't know how many that we thought were working for us are actually working for other agencies and other governments. If that don't scare you, you a lot braver than I am. Like, hey, this is supposed to be your job. This is supposed to be what you are experts at. And apparently the CIA has lost their touch. And I think there's a lot of validity to the idea that the article points out. That our focus on Afghanistan and Iraq and terrorist organizations has left us open and in turn has left us open to espionage from other world powers like China and Russia. And apparently Pakistan. Apparently the Pakistanis are really good at turning those that we think are working for us against us. And we've been quick on this show to hold our intelligence agencies to account you don't see very much reporting on intelligence agencies on cable news. I wonder why that is. Or in printed news. But here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson, you know that we keep it a buck with you. We keep it a stack. We let you know what's going on in the world. And apparently one thing that is going on is that the CIA is out here just misplacing sources. Just misplacing spies. Just losing track of people that they're paid to keep track of. And apparently that's one job that you can fail at and still face no accountability. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Our second story in the world of politics, for first time in 233 years, a Native American, Native Alaskan, and Native Hawaiian are all in the U.S. House. Last month, Mary Peltola made history when she became the first Native Alaskan and woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives for the last frontier state. When Peltola was sworn in last month, Congress reached a milestone. For the first time in more than two centuries, the House has full U.S. indigenous representation, according to Representative Kalali Kahele of Hawaii. It has taken 233 years for the U.S. Congress to be fully represented by the country's indigenous peoples, 
Kahele, the second native Hawaiian to represent his home state, posted on Twitter alongside a photograph of him, Peltola, and Representative Sharice Davids of Kansas, a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation. Tonight, a Native American, a Native Alaskan, and a Native Hawaiian are sitting members of the People's House. In August, Peltola, a member of the Yupik people, won Alaska's special congressional election and will finish the remaining term of the late Representative Don Young, who passed away in March. Peltola, former Governor Sarah Palin, and Nick Bijic ran both in a special election to fill out the rest of Young's term and will run in the general election for a new term. After her September 13th swearing-in, there are now six indigenous Americans who are representatives in the House. So, for the first time in 233 years, a Native Alaskan, Native Hawaiian, and Native American are in the House of Representatives at the same time, elected to represent their people. And I share this news with you um, because it is important and because it does matter. Representation matters. And I don't share this with you in some celebration of box checking. I don't think that people should uh, be in positions simply because uh, of their race, because of this, because of that. This is not what's happening on this show. We don't do that. But how the American government is supposed to work at its best is that it's supposed to be a government for the people, of the people, and by the people. And unfortunately, in a lot of our history, it has not worked out that way for everybody. It has not worked out that way for people who were native to the land before us. It has not worked out that way for people who have different pigmentation in their skin for people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So in 2023, for this to happen for the first time in 233 years, for these folks not just to be in positions of influence, but to be elected, to be elected by their peers, and to be in positions that they have each earned to represent their homes and the people who live there, their towns and their counties and their their area, in addition to their ancestors. It's something worth celebrating. Regardless if they share the same politics as you or if they come from the other side of the aisle, it's something worth celebrating. And it's pretty cool. And it shouldn't have taken 233 years, but here we are. And we can celebrate the progress that we've made while still looking for more progress to come. Because if our country is to operate how it should, if our government is to be what it is at its best, it has to be of, by, and for All people. All people. And if nothing else, this is at least a step in the right direction. And make no mistake, each of these people earned their position. They weren't appointed because of their ethnicity or their race or their background. They won elections. They earned their position. And here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson, we congratulate each of them. We celebrate the accomplishment. We look forward to a day where our nation and our government lives up to all the things that we can be at our best. And that's real. Our third story in the world of politics, Twitter Files, founder Jack Dorsey urges Musk to release everything without filter. Twitter's co-founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey urged Elon Musk to release without filter Twitter's internal communications about moderation decisions relating to a report about President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, dubbed the Twitter files, days after the first set of files published by journalist Matt Taibbi failed to deliver any surprising new details. 
Over the past week, Musk had been hyping the release of internal Twitter communications, which he's named the Twitter Files, claiming that they will disclose the platform's previous efforts to suppress free speech, especially from conservative voices. In his first public reaction to the release, Dorsey tweeted Musk Wednesday saying if his goal was to establish transparency and truth, why not just release everything without filter and let people judge for themselves? Dorsey then urged Musk to make everything public now, including all of Twitter's discussions around current and future actions on content moderation. Prior to the remark, the Twitter co-founder had remained silent about Musk's claims that the social media platform had unfairly suppressed free speech by censoring an October 2020 New York Post story about then-Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden's alleged ties with a Ukrainian energy firm which made payments to his son Hunter. While the first set of files published Friday by journalist Matt Taibbi failed to provide any shocking details, it also failed to attract Dorsey and Representative Ro Khanna's personal email IDs. The first set of Twitter files were released after Musk shared Twitter's internal communications with Taibbi. The documents demonstrated that Twitter officials debated whether or not to suppress the New York Post story, the reporting of which was based on data recovered from Hunter Biden's personal laptop. A decision was eventually made to ban the story from the platform over concerns that it may have been in violation of Twitter's policy on the publishing of hacked materials. This ban was reversed within days, and Dorsey admitted it was a mistake. Taibbi said he found no evidence that he's seen of any government involvement in the laptop story, dismissing a popular Republican conspiracy that the FBI was involved in the decision. The report also mentioned that both the Trump White House and Biden's campaign requested Twitter to take down certain content. In one of his tweets, Taibbi mentioned that Twitter had deleted five tweets following a request from the Biden team, but failed to note that the tweets in question were nude photos of Hunter Biden, which were shared without his consent. Conservatives appeared to latch onto this tweet by claiming it was an example of government censorship, even though the Trump administration was in power at the time. Musk himself tweeted without evidence that Twitter had acted under orders from the government to suppress free speech with no judicial review. So, you may be wondering... Why are you sharing this story now? This is old news. There has been several variations of these Twitter files. They have been released by Matt Taibbi and a host of other journalists. Why are you covering this story now and in this way? And the answer is because it's something that matters. But I think what's very interesting about this whole escapade with Twitter and Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, and the Biden campaign, and the Trump presidency, and social media, and free speech, and Republican and Democrat, the thing that's very interesting to me about it all is the tug of war on these ubiquitous social media platforms and those who are in charge of running them between what, what constitutes as free speech and content moderation and what bleeds over into censorship. And... This is something that uh, Jack Dorsey said at the very beginning of this whole thing. When Elon Musk had just given one set of information to Matt Taibbi to release, Jack Dorsey comes out and says, just release it all. Just release it all. The whole point is to give information so that the public can see what's going on behind the scenes. Just release it all. And I don't know that he feels that way anymore. And so much has happened with this story. Uh, There's news articles that trickle out every day about Elon Musk's control of Twitter and his running of the 
the platform and, and how he's running it into the ground and uh, about how they no longer get bagels there and he's sleeping in the office and is being investigated for having bedrooms there when you're not supposed to do that and all kinds of other things. All kinds of crazy stories. The first set of stuff that Matt Taibbi was given to produce the first set of Twitter files, it later came out that uh, that information had first been vetted and possibly even edited by a lawyer associated with Twitter who also had ties to intelligence. It became apparent that there was absolute um, censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story that was that was put out by the New York Post, even with Twitter officials wrestling with a way to do that under their rules and understanding that they were kind of on the line. There were suggestions by both the Trump administration and the Biden campaign to uh, censor certain stories or posts, some that even came from people with very little following. And it has come out that higher-ups in content moderation at Twitter were having regular meetings with intelligence agency officials. There's a lot to unpack here. Is it a huge uh, left-wing conspiracy? Is it governmental overreach? Is it that the intelligence agencies and social media platforms are a lot more connected than we realize? Yes, they are. Or is it all just a giant behemoth of a social media platform wrestling to walk that line of allowing people to have free speech on their platform while also as a private entity trying to moderate content? Jack Dorsey says, hey, just release everything. I'm not sure he feels that way anymore. Outside of intelligence agencies, I'm not sure that this was really a governmental edict to thwart free speech that goes against uh, positions being held by elected officials. I'm not sure that this is the giant conspiracy that those on the far right think that it is. But even so, it's certainly problematic. And it can happen in more natural ways. It doesn't have to be this giant overarching governmental conspiracy. It can happen in more natural ways when you have an organization without political diversity, without diversity of thought. When everybody working in moderation at your company tends to be left-leaning, and very much so, it can happen that these policies that are written, that are enacted, tend to be more politically expedient for the left. But what you have with something like Twitter that has become more than just a private company. I hear people all the time say they're a private company. They can do what they want. At least they said that before Elon took over. (laughs) They're a private company. They can do what they want. It's bigger than that. Because Facebook and Twitter are more than just private companies now. They really are like the town square of the internet. And I know people get tired of hearing that, but it's true. The way the information is disseminated in our world and society. These social media giants really have become like town squares of the internet. And so we have to be very careful when we're talking about content moderation versus free speech. We have to walk that line without censorship. We have to allow people to share what they think, to share news articles, even if it's ones that we disagree with, and to make political statements. Not statements that incite violence, not racial slurs, but speech from all political viewpoints. And we've said on the show a million times that the best way to combat poor speech is with better speech. The best critique of the poor is the practice of the better. Okay, 
it's not limiting speech. It's not uh, hiding articles that, that go against the, the popular narrative or not allowing people to say things that you may believe not to be true. And this is something that our society, our, our nation, is going to have to figure out. Because social media does have an influence on everyday life. We are stuck in the algorithm. So many of us are stuck in the algorithm. That's, pro- that's part of why I have taken a break for the last month. To withdraw from social media. To take a break. To get off of the platforms. To go outside. To sit around a fire. To be with my children. Our life is managed by an algorithm. So much of the time. So much of our population finds all of their news, all of their truth, all of their research through these social media avenues. So something we've got to figure out is how to allow people to say what they believe, to share sources and news articles, and to make their statements while also understanding that content moderation has to be a thing and these are private entities as well. But I'm going to tell you, the relationship between Intelligence agencies and social media platforms makes me nervous. It makes me nervous. I don't think that this whole thing that these Twitter files was necessarily the the slam dunk giant governmental conspiracy that the right is claiming. I also don't think that there's nothing to see here whistle past the graveyard like the left is saying. The truth is somewhere in between. But that relationship that exists between intelligence agencies and social media is, is far tighter than most of us realize. And that makes me nervous. And that can have an effect on our democracy. And this tug of war between content moderation and free speech, between free speech and censorship, and where where that line is drawn when it comes to social media, something that, that are private companies but also have become public town squares, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's something that has to be figured out. Our last story in the world of politics this week A man in China was hospitalized after he ate a whole live crab to take revenge for my daughter after it pinched her. (laughs) And this is why this show is growing. This is why this show is popular, because who else in the world of news talks to you about free speech and then jumps right into a man who eats a live crab to take revenge after it pinched his daughter. Only in my shed. Only on this show. 2023 is our year. A man in China became strangely ill. I don't think it's that strange. I think you should say he became predictably ill. But I digress. Months after he ate a live crab to avenge his daughter. And it seems like the crab might have had the last word. I digress. The man, identified as 39-year-old Lu, was recently seen by doctors at a hospital in Hangzhou for severe back pain about two months after he swallowed the crustacean, according to the South China Morning Post. I asked him, why did you eat a live crab? And he said, I wanted to take revenge for my daughter, Dr. Cao Kwan said per the Morning Post. He said, when we were by a stream, my daughter was pinched by a small crab. So I got angry, and I put it into my mouth for revenge. (laughs) Lou is hard. Lou goes hard in the paint. This is a family man, uh, Mr. Lou. Mr. Lou's like, hey, you pinch my daughter, I eat you. (laughs) 
father of the year, uh, Mr. Lou. Cal said that Lou only admitted to eating the crab after his wife mentioned the incident to doctors who were puzzled by pathology changes in his chest, abdomen, liver, and digestive system per the Morning Post. Good grief. We repeatedly asked him if he'd ever eaten game or anything unusual, anything that could cause allergies. He said no to all, Cal said, noting that Lou later admitted to doctors that he had eaten something special. Blood tests later showed Lou had three parasitic infections from eating the live crab, according to the Morning Post, who noted that he had since recovered but will require follow-ups. While crab is typically cooked in China and across most of the world, it is sometimes served raw but marinated in alcohol, earning the name drunken crabs. Sounds delicious. Theoretically, it's better to eat something marinated than completely raw because it has been treated with alcohol, which can kill parasites and bacteria, Cal said per the Morning Post. But it can't kill all parasites, so it's not 100% safe either. This man took revenge on a crab that pinched his daughter by swallowing that thing whole. He said, I put you in my mouth to take revenge. And he wound up with three different kinds of parasites. He didn't even want to admit to the doctors what happened, and then his wife was like, hey, you got to tell him. He's like, nah. Hey, you got to tell him. Nah. Lou was just going to die. He would rather just die than admit to these doctors what he did. And finally, when he had no choice, he was like, well, there was one time I ate a crab. A live crab. And that crab was down there apparently just pinching his kidneys and, and taking care of little lacerations all up in his bowels. Just releasing parasites. Uh, you get a parasite, you get a parasite, you get a parasite. Because Lou swallowed a live crab. But hey, that man loves his daughter, okay? <laughs> China just breed a different kind of dad. That's what I'm hearing. That's what I got out of this article is that China just breeds a different kind of dad. Because as, as much as I love my two babies, and you know Papa Bear don't play no games. I love my children, but as much as I love my babies, one thing I'm not going to do for my children is take revenge on a crab by swallowing it whole. Not happening. Not for nobody. Father of the year goes to you, Lou. Get well soon. From the world of politics, let's switch to this, the news in the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Jim Harbaugh denies lying to NCAA investigators. Ben Simmons ejected as the Nets lose again. Loyola Marymount halts Gonzaga's 76-game home win streak. Notre Dame's men's basketball coach Mike Bray to step down at season's end. Bucks fire offensive coordinator Byron Lefwich. Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss add quarterback Spencer Sanders from Oklahoma State via the transfer portal. And finally, TCU hires Kendall Bryles as offensive coordinator. We're going to talk some NFL playoffs and some NBA basketball. But first, let's start with the world of college football. Since we last talked, Caleb Williams won the Heisman Trophy, the great USC quarterback, and Georgia has become back-to-back -back national champions. 
Georgia trounced TCU 65-7 in the college football playoff championship game, the most points ever scored and the biggest defeat in college football playoff history. Heisman finalist Max Duggan was held to 152 yards passing and two interceptions, while Stetson Bennett threw for 304 yards and four touchdowns. Brock Bowers was unstoppable. Georgia rushed for 254 yards. They got to TCU quarterback Max Duggan five times with sacks, and they won their second straight national championship in more than convincing fashion. This was a game in which Georgia was dominant from the start. Uh, They had a point to prove, and they proved it. Kirby Smart and his coaching staff put together a terrific game plan. Georgia's defense was dominant. Their offense scored almost every time they had the football. And you can say what you want, but the dynasty is here. You can say what you want. You might not like to hear it. You may not appreciate it, but the dynasty is here. The way that Kirby Smart has things rolling in Athens, Georgia is in dynastic form. Back-to-back national championships, they've appeared in other national championships, they've been close before. They're consistently recruiting the top three in the country. They had a defense last year that was otherworldly and one that performed very well this year. They had an offense that was even better this year than it had been before. They run the football, they turn you over, they execute like no other, and they were absolutely dominant in the national championship game. And they've reached dynasty status. They're the best team in the SEC. They have kicked Alabama to the curb. It doesn't mean that Nick Saban and his team will never win another championship. It doesn't mean that they're not one of the best programs in the country or that they're not elite. But right now, Georgia is king of college football and is on a whole other level than any other team, Alabama included. They just are. They just are. And look, we told you on this show when we did our college football preview We told you that Georgia's defense would be a lot better than people thought. That people were making too much of, well, they they sent so many guys to the NFL. They had uh, one of the best defenses in in college football history, and they're not going to be that good. Hey, they have so much talent, so much depth on that roster, so much knowledge and expertise on that coaching staff. We told you their defense would be plenty good, and it proved to be good enough. And look, a lot of people are talking about TCU, saying that their performance in the national championship game showed that they should not have been in the playoffs and yada, yada, yada. TCU deserved their shot. They deserved their shot. They made their conference championship game and lost barely. It was their only loss of the season. They beat the consensus number two team in the country in the first round of the playoffs in Michigan. Michigan didn't have Blake Corum, but even so, TCU beat Michigan. They beat Jim Harbaugh. They sent the best team from the Big Ten home. They deserve to be in the national championship game. And they had a great season. For that to be Sonny Dyke's first year, for Max Duggan to play the way that he did, for their wide receiver who's going to be a a first-round NFL draft pick, they had a great season. The Horned Frogs were a, a wonderful story and a very good college football team. But Georgia was the best team in the country, and it wasn't close. And the championship game showed that. Several times this year, Georgia was bored. Georgia played with their food a little bit. There were certainly instances and games where Georgia played down to the level of their competition. But they never lost. And when everything was on the line, they were dominant. And look, something else that we have to talk about when it comes to this game is the greatness of Stetson Bennett. 
Stetson Bennett, who it seems like has been at Georgia for like 35 years now, um, like he just got his his second national championship and also his AARP card, and he's been maligned throughout his time at Georgia. Almost never guaranteed a, a starting quarterback spot. A former walk-on had to transfer out to a JUCO and come back. Under six feet, 160 pounds, soaking wet. But the kid has moxie. And he's a very good, I mean, this is a cliche, but very underrated athlete. And he's a heck of a college quarterback. Two national championships, back-to-back, defeated C.J. Stroud and Max Duggan, two quarterbacks that almost everybody would have said a year and a half ago were better quarterbacks than Stetson Bennett. Stetson Bennett isn't just a quarterback that throws five-yard slants to talented receivers. Look at the throws he made in this game. 304 yards, four touchdowns. Stetson Bennett is an excellent college quarterback who, who deserves all the credit that he's getting and more and will probably be drafted by Bill Belichick. <laughs> Doesn't he just seem like a player that would be drafted by Bill Belichick? So we close the chapter on the college football season with Georgia as back-to-back national champions, even having to replace a lot of NFL talent and their starting quarterback, uh, there's no reason to think that they won't be very, very good again next year. And now we move into the, the fun of, of the college football offseason. And a couple of things that I've had fun keeping up with already in this college football offseason are new coaches that have been hired. One is Coach Prime at Colorado, my Buffaloes. And Deion Sanders has quietly, uh, has he, does he do anything quietly? put together a very solid coaching staff with Charles Kelly as a defensive coordinator. Used to be at Florida State, was on staff at Alabama. He's come over as their defensive coordinator. He made a great move by uh, luring Kent State coach Sean Lewis to come as offensive coordinator by getting Mississippi Valley State head coach Vincent Dancy on the, the staff, by bringing with him veteran running back coach and ace recruiter Tim Brewster. There's rumor that Willie Taggart and others are joining the staff also. And even just yesterday, Deion Sanders landed the number one cornerback recruit in the country. In the whole country, a five-star player out of Florida. Got him to change his commitment from Miami to Colorado. And now the Buffaloes are up to 29th in the country when it comes to their recruiting class. Up from like 73rd before he took over. I can't wait to see what he does at Colorado with a little bit of time. And it's going to take time. It's going to take time. It may not be immediate, even in the Pac-12. Because Colorado had the worst roster of any Division I Power Five football team, bar none last year, when it comes to talent and depth. But he's starting to, to change that already. The other coach I've been watching closely is Hugh Freeze at Auburn, who's doing a lot of the same. And I was critical of the hire of Hugh Freeze at Auburn, not because of his success or lack thereof as a football coach, but because of his untrustworthiness and lack of character as a man. Um, I told you one thing Hugh Freeze can do is coach football. And he has made Brian Harson somehow look even worse than he looked getting fired mid-year. Because Auburn has moved up from being in the mid-40s to 18th overall in the country in their recruiting class. They brought in 12 transfers. They're going to have almost 40 new players next season. A five-win football team is somehow going to have almost a turnover of almost half their roster. That's an infusion of talent. And at least when it comes to recruiting, so far Hugh Freeze is getting it done for Auburn. 
Uh, he has already started to, to work to rebuild the offensive and defensive lines, saying that he was going to focus on big men, and he's brought in seven or eight of each. He's doing work in the trenches to make Auburn competitive in the SEC again. And as much fun as the season is, the offseason in college football is always fun too. One thing that I look forward to doing is keeping up with progress of teams that hire new coaches. And both Deion Sanders at Colorado and Hugh Freeze at Auburn are making waves early on. Next week, we'll check in with college basketball, but let's take a look at the NBA right now. And in the East, these are where things stand. The Celtics are number one, followed by the Bucks, the 76ers, the Nets, the Cavaliers, the Heat, the New York Knicks, and the Atlanta Hawks at eighth. And in the Western Conference, the standings are this. The Nuggets are first overall, followed by the Grizzlies, the Kings, the Pelicans, the Mavericks, the Jazz, the Timberwolves, and the Clippers. The top five scorers in the league right now are Luka Doncic, averaging 33.7 points a game, Joel Embiid at 33.6, Jason Tatum at 31.2, Giannis at 31 points, and Shea Gilgis Alexander at 30.5 points overall. And quickly, I want to highlight a couple things that I've been noticing as we creep up on the halfway point in the NBA season. And the first question that I have is, why aren't the Hawks better? If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm an Atlanta Hawks and Golden State Warriors fan. I have been before Steph Curry. I grew up as a Hawks fan my whole life, uh, being that I live in Alabama and Atlanta is the closest sports town to us. But I've also been a Warriors fan ever since they were year in and year out one of the worst teams in the Western Conference. I always root for the underdog. And of course, my fandom of them has only grown since they drafted Steph Curry, who is my favorite player in the league. So when it comes to Atlanta, one of my two favorite teams, I just wonder why aren't they better? The Hawks have Trey Young averaging 27-10. and 10. In the offseason, they traded for DeJounte Murray. They have a defense that's anchored by Clint Capella, who is more than capable. They have a veteran head coach in Nate McMillan. They have John Collins. They have Bogey coming off the bench as a scorer. They have young rotation players like DeAndre Hunter and Okongwu and A.J. Griffin, who who have a lot of upside. They should be better than 8th in the East, one game above 500. Wasn't it just two seasons ago that Atlanta looked like it was taking the next step and made the Eastern Conference Finals? Their GM, Travis Schlink, has stepped down earlier in the season. There's been miscommunication and beef between Trey Young and Nate McMillan. What seems to be a a generational divide there between uh, Nate McMillan, who's more old school, and Trey Young, who's still trying to find his footing as a leader and as a franchise player. The Hawks should be no worse than 4th or 5th in the Eastern Conference. They have enough shooting, they have enough talent, they have enough depth. The addition of DeJounte Murray was, was supposed to provide Trey Young with a second score and, and help the, with team defense. But they continue to be a terrible defensive team, something that usually is, is a highlight of Nate, Nate McMillan coach teams. They continue to struggle on defense. They continue to struggle with consistency. They don't seem to be on the same page. And they've had injuries, but what team doesn't halfway through the year? Why aren't the Hawks better? And then the Warriors. My question with the Warriors at this point in the season is, can they turn it around? Can Golden State turn it around? They currently sit at ninth in the Western Conference. They have a losing record halfway through the season as defending NBA champions. And there's a lot to be determined, a lot to be decided. They've got a lot of complicated situations out in Golden State by the Bay. 
Bob Myers still has no new contract. The Warriors may be unable or unwilling to pay Draymond Green when he wants to be paid in the offseason. The James Wiseman experience hasn't panned out so far. Jonathan Kaminga is an athletic freak, but he's too inconsistent to stay on the court and is a part of the rotation. Patrick Baldwin just isn't ready yet. Klay Thompson is rounding into form, and Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins are back from injury, but the truth is the Warriors are undersized, and they have no bench. They just have no bench. As it turns out, guys like Juan Toscano-Anderson and Damian Lee and Bielitsa meant a whole lot more to a championship team than I think most people realize. Because even if they weren't eating up big minutes, those guys knew how to play as a part of the system. Otto Porter knew how to play as a part of the system. Damian Lee knew how to play as a part of the system. And James Wiseman doesn't. And Kevon Looney is a good player. He's a part of that core. He plays very well in their system, but he's an undersized center, and you don't have anybody to back him up. And the only move the Warriors have is to play small ball when they change things up, to put Draymond at the five. And that doesn't work against every squad. That doesn't always create matchups in your favor. So what can Steve Kerr do? What trades can the team make? Last night, the Warriors lost in Boston in a rematch of the NBA Finals, and they outplayed the Celtics the entire game. They built up a lead uh, up to 11 or 13 points, and then to start the fourth quarter, Steph Curry took his rest. The Warriors had to play four out of five starters because they just don't have a deep rotation. And they began to turn the ball over. They had defensive breakdowns. They allowed the Celtics to come back take it into overtime, and then the Celtics outplayed them in the, the extra period and won the game. It's a microcosm of how their season has been so far, and it's the reason why they have a losing record. Don't get me wrong, the Warriors are plenty capable of making the playoffs, of making a run and getting in as the 6th or 7th or 8th seed into the playoffs, and as long as they make the tournament, they have the talent that anything can happen. But they have a lot of questions that have to be asked first. And they're running out of time. So I asked a couple questions when it comes to the NBA and where we are right now. Why aren't the Hawks better? Can the Warriors turn it around? I also have a statement that I would like to make. And that's Mark Cuban. Uh, shut up. <laughs> Mark Cuban, shut up. And look, I, I tend to like Mark Cuban. Uh, I, I like Shark Tank. I'm a fan of the show. I like what he's done in the business world and what he's built for himself. I, I tend to root for the Mavericks. I was a Dirk Nowitzki fan, a Steve Nash fan. The fact that he took a team that was terrible and made them into a 50-win team every year was a cool thing to watch. But I don't know if you saw the graffiti art mural that went up in Dallas last week and Mark Cuban's reaction to it. It was a painting of Luka Doncic with the thought bubble and the words that said, send me help. Or maybe he was holding up a sign, I think, that said, send help. And Mark Cuban's response to that was that it was disrespectful to the other players. Hey, Mark, shut up. What are you talking about? You got to where you were as a billionaire, as an owner of an NBA team, because you, because you didn't make excuses. And because you had to listen to and hear and say some hard truths. So here's the truth. Luka Doncic needs help. You're telling me that Reggie Bullock 
Spencer Dinwiddie and Tim Hardaway Jr. are the best that you can do. The best that you can provide for a generational talent. Did those are supposed to be the running mates that take him to the NBA Finals and help him win a championship? Give me a break. Now, some of it is Dallas's inability to lure big-time free agents. We've seen this for the last several years. Ever since Dirk Nowitzki has retired, they've swung and they've missed a number of times. And some of it may be Luka's playing style. Because he, he's a, a phenomenal passer, but he tends to be ball-centric. He tends to be somebody that holds the ball for a long time, most possessions of the game, doesn't move well without the ball, a little reminiscent of James Harden. And, and that's a style that can be hard for other players to adapt to, and that honestly some players don't want to play with. So while there might be several reasons and many factors for why the Mavericks don't have the help around Luka that they should, and that fans want to see and that they need in order to win a championship. Whether it's the market size of Dallas, whether it's with the money that they have available, whether it's the conference, the location, the the playing style of Luka, all of these things, Mark Cuban's response to this mural is just silly. It's just silly. Have some thicker skin, Mark, and let people speak truth to your power. Luka needs help. And that's all there is to it. The mural is right. And deep down, Mark probably knows that. Moving from the world of professional basketball, we go to the world of professional football, where the NFL playoffs are in full swing. In the wild card round, this is how things shook out in the NFC. 49ers defeated the Seahawks 41-23 with Brock Purdy throwing for 332 yards and three scores. And the Giants defeated the Vikings 31-24. And the Dallas Cowboys sent Tom Brady to the ice bath, defeating the Buccaneers 31-14. In the AFC, the Jaguars came back from 27 points down to shock the Chargers 31-30. The Bills beat the Tua-less Dolphins 34-31. And the Bengals held on against the Ravens, who were without Lamar Jackson, to win by a score of 24-17. In the divisional round, the Eagles will take on the Giants, and the Cowboys will travel to San Francisco to play the 49ers in the NFC. And then in the AFC, Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars will visit the Chiefs, and the Bengals will play the Bills. And here is how I see things shaking out. In the NFC, I'm actually going to pick an upset, and I'm going to take the New York football Giants over the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles have been the better team all season long. They've been the best team in football for most of the season. Their defense is good and they have weapons. But Jalen Hurts has missed a lot of football as of late. And the Giants are hungry and they're hot. And I'm going to go with an upset. I'm going to say that the Giants go on the road and they upset the Eagles 24-14 and send them home early. And you already know I'm not picking the Cowboys. Um, I underestimated the Cowboys all season long. I didn't think that they would be as good as they are. I wasn't sure they would make the playoffs. I thought they would lose in the first round of the playoffs. And every step of the way, they have proved me wrong. However, I just don't like this matchup for the Cowboys. Before playing the Buccaneers, Dak Prescott had thrown an interception in like seven consecutive games. Brock Purdy is playing terrifically. The 49ers are loaded. They have uh, one of the better rosters top to bottom on offense and defense in all of football. And they're hot. Uh, They're hot. They're one of 
They're a team that seems to be peaking at the right time. And even though the Cowboys have been a team that I have underestimated all year, I'm going to go for it one more time. I have the 49ers defeating the Cowboys by a score of 27-10. to 10. Dallas fans, go ahead and slide into my DMs. Go ahead and send me a message. Get at me. Let me know how wrong I am going to be. I'll just be glad you listened to the show. Then the AFC, the Jaguars visit the Chiefs. And even though the Jags have shown remarkable improvement, and the second half of the season, Trevor Lawrence was in the upper echelon of NFL quarterbacks, and they just came back from 27 down. I just don't see them going into Arrowhead in the playoffs and winning this football game. I'm going to go with the Chiefs on top, 31-21. to And then in what will be the game that I'm looking forward to watching the most, the Bengals will play the Bills. A matchup of two elite teams, two elite quarterbacks, Most of the season, the Bills have been a better team than the Cincinnati Bengals. But one thing that you won't find me doing very often is betting against Joe Burrow. I have a hard time betting against Joe Burrow because he always comes out on top. He always finds a way to get it done. And I know his offensive line is rackety. I know that the Bills are very good on defense. I know they're going to get after him. They're going to try to force him into turnovers. And I know that Josh Allen can be absolutely electric. But he also turned the football over three times last weekend against Miami. Give me Cincinnati 31-24. to So if my predictions turn out to be correct, which they may or may not, that will put in the NFC the Giants against the 49ers. Give me the 49ers. And the Chiefs against the Bengals. And again, I'm going with Joe Burrow against everybody. Joe Burrow and company against everybody. So then I have the 49ers and the Bengals in the Super Bowl. And we'll wait to predict that one when we see if that turns out to be correct. So that's how I see things. That's how I have it going. I have the Giants upsetting the Eagles. I have the 49ers beating the Cowboys handily. I have the Chiefs beating the Jaguars at home. And the Bengals dispensing of the Bills. How do you think things will go? What do you see? What matchups do you like? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed 4 I would love to hear from you. That's all for the world of sports this week. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of the paranormal. Where our first story takes us to Rome, kind of. Gold coin proves fake Roman emperor was real. An ancient gold coin proves that a 3rd century Roman emperor written out of history as a fictional character really did exist, scientists say. The coin bearing the name of Sponsian in his portrait was found more than 300 years ago in Transylvania. Transylvania, you say? Ivan Dusak Yablad. I am... I'm all in. On some Transylvania. If you tell me we're talking Transylvania, hey. I'm there. I'm all in. And I'm all ears. I digress. Once a far-flung outpost of the Roman Empire... Believed to be a fake, it had been locked away in a museum cupboard. And this sounds like a movie. This sounds like an absolute movie. Based on a book. But now, scientists say the scratch marks visible under a microscope prove that it was in circulation 2,000 years ago. Professor Paul Pearson, University College of London, who led the research, told BBC News that he was astonished by the discovery. What we found is an emperor... He was a figure thought to have been a fake and written off by experts, he said. But we think he was real and that he had a role in history. The coin at the center of the story was among a small hoard discovered in 1730. 
discovered in 1713. I said horde, horde, I said. I have that, you know, my Alabama, I, I said horde with a D. It was thought to have been a genuine Roman coin until the mid-19th century when experts suspected that they might have been produced by forgers of the time because of their crude design. The final blow came in 1863 when Henry Cohen, the leading coin expert of the time at the Bibliotheca Nationale de France, considered the problem for this great catalog of Roman coins. According to him, the coins were not only modern fakes, but poorly made and ridiculously imagined. Other specialists agreed, and to this day, Sponsian has been dismissed in scholarly catalogs. But Professor Pearson suspected otherwise when he saw photographs of the coin while researching for a book about the history of the Roman Empire. He could make out scratches on its surface that he thought might have been produced by the coin being in circulation. He contacted the Hunterian Museum at Glasgow University where the coin had been kept locked away in a cupboard, along with three others from the original hoard, and asked if he could work with the researchers there. They examined all four coins under a powerful microscope and confirmed in the journal Plus One that there really were scratches and the patterns were consistent with them being jingled around in purses. And how could they tell? How could Science is amazing. But how could they tell these particular scratches are consistent with having been in a purse? Not in a pocket. Not in somebody's hands. Not against other coins or trampled on the ground, but from being in a purse. A chemical analysis also showed that the coins had been buried in soil for hundreds of years, according to Jesper Erickson, who is the museum's curator of coins, and worked with Professor Pearson on the project. The researchers now have to answer the question, who was Sponsian? The researchers believe that he was a military commander who was forced to crown himself as emperor of the most distant and difficult-to-defend province of the Roman Empire, called Dacia. Archaeological studies have established that Dacia was cut off from the rest of the Roman Empire in around 260 AD. There was a pandemic, you don't say. Civil war and the empire was fragmenting. And then there was election fraud and not enough people masked up for the pandemic. <laughs> I'm just making jokes. I'm just out, I'm just out here making jokes, okay? Just a joke. Surrounded by enemies and cut off from Rome, Sponsian likely assumed supreme command during a period of chaos and civil war, protecting the military and civilian population of Dacia, I said population, Alabama, population of Dacia until order was restored and the province evacuated between 271 AD and 275 AD, according to Jesper Erickson. Our interpretation is that he was in charge to maintain control of the military, and of the civilian population because they were surrounded and completely cut off, he said. In order to create a functioning economy in the province, they decided to mint their own coins. This theory would explain why the coins are unlike those from Rome. They may not have known who the actual emperor was because there was civil war, says Professor Pearson. But what they needed was a supreme military commander in the absence of real power from Rome. He took command at a period when command was needed. Once the researchers had established that the coins were authentic and they had discovered what they believed to be a lost Roman emperor, they alerted researchers at the Brukenthal Museum in Saibu in Transylvania, which also has a Sponsian coin. It was part of the bequest of Baron Samuel von Brukenthal, possible vampire, the Habsburg governor of Transylvania, absolute vampire. The Baron was studying the coin at the time of his death, and the story goes that the last thing he did was to write a note saying, Genuine.
The specialists at the Brukenthal Museum had classified their coin as a historic fake, as had everyone else. But they changed their minds when they saw the UK research. The discovery is of particular interest for the history of Transylvania and Romania, according to the interim manager of the Brukenthal National Museum, Alexandru Constantin Chitudu. And that is a fun name to say. Alexander Constantin Chitudu. Hmm. For the history of Transylvania and Romania in particular, but also for the history of Europe in general, if these results are accepted by the scientific community, they will mean the addition of another important historical figure in our history, he said. The coins are currently on display at the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow. So, they completely wrote off the emperor on this coin because the coin was labeled as a fake. Labeled as a fake by quote-unquote experts. And I have no problem believing that because experts get things wrong all the time. Especially when it comes to things like this, uh, ancient artifacts and coins and antiques. I have a little bit of experience in that world. I have been an antique dealer, uh, per se. Or at least was for uh, the last seven or so years uh, on the side, here and there, a little bit. And because of that side hustle, hobby, whatever you want to label it, I actually got to deal with a lot of uh, older things. And one thing that I like to buy and sell is gold coins from all over the world. I know, you're like, hey, we didn't know you had this in you, Wes. We thought you were just a, a simple Alabama man in, in the shed. And I am. I'm also a journalist, but hey. I collected coins from all over the world, gold coins from Central and South America, from different parts of the world, and sold them. Buy and sell. And I took a chance one time at an auction. And I bought, bought this coin that was not even being marketed as the real thing. It was being marketed as, uh, well, it appears to have some age to it, but we don't really know if it's authentic. If you want to take a chance and buy it, we'll sell it to you. So your boy took a chance. And I bought this gold coin. And I took it to two different coin shops to quote-unquote experts. And they both told me, oh yeah, no, this isn't, this isn't real, it's not worth anything other than the, the metal that is, it's imprinted on. It may not even be actual gold. It seems to have a little bit of gold in it, but mostly some other metal. One guy told me, I'll buy it for you for 30 bucks if you want to just get rid of it. I did not. And as it turned out, the coin was completely authentic was from the 18 or 1700s and your boy sold it for $457. Yeah, 457 big ones, my babies. That's a lot of hamburger meat. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that quote-unquote experts missed on this one. It's easy to do, especially with something like coins. And I thought this was a really interesting story, something worth noting and sharing, that there was an entire Roman emperor that had been missed by history. They had been labeled as never existing and fictitious and fictional. Hey, he was a real guy. And he was in charge of running some stuff in a very difficult place in Rome. Because of vampires and civil war. From the Roman Empire, we go to time traveling. Yeah, because why not? Time Traveler claims huge meteor will bring aliens to Earth in the next few months. 
And I did not read this article before making my prediction for 2023 that we will find life on another planet. So if this pans out, it's just because I see the future, my tools. Not because I had read this article already. TikTok user The Radiant Time Traveler, known as Eno Alaric, posted a video to the platform on October 2nd warning people about five huge future events. And let's see if he gets 25% correct, because that's where I'm at. 25%, I'm batting 250. What about you, Radiant Time Traveler? They say that between November 2022 and May 2023, humans will find new planets, be hit by a giant meteor transporting aliens, and eventually be flooded by a disastrous tsunami. That's in the next four months, my babies. We gotta prepare. Put your house on stilts. Get ready. The video, which has more than 131,000 likes, slightly more than than, uh, this show has been downloaded, but that's okay, says, Attention! Yes, I am a real time traveler from the year 2671. Remember these five dates to come. And whenever somebody tells you that they are real, I don't know if you're like me, but it makes me doubt that you are, in fact, real. (laughs) When somebody says, I am a real time traveler, I'm like, hey, I think maybe you're a fake time traveler. But that's just me. Let's see what predictions he has made. November 30th, 2022, the James Webb Telescope finds a planet that is mirrored version of Earth. And I don't think that happened unless they didn't tell us about it. The video then states that on December 8th, 2022, a large meteor will hit Earth containing new types of metals and alien species. Again, as far as I know, that didn't occur. But hey, maybe it did and we don't know about it. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's get into some predictions for 2023. Maybe he's on to something. As though this was not enough, on February 6, 2023, they say a group of four teenagers will discover ancient ruins and a device that opens a wormhole to other galaxies. And that's got to be in a comic book somewhere. Uh, That's a movie. If you know where this prediction comes from, this alleged time-traveling prediction, if this is a movie or a comic book, get at us on Twitter, email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com, and expose this real time-traveler. Next, they said March 23, 2023, a team of scientists exploring the Mariana Trench will find ancient species. Okay, like an octopus, because octopuses are aliens. We covered that on the show. On May 15th, Alaric suggests a 750-foot tsunami will hit the west coast of the USA with San Francisco bearing the brunt. And I sure hope not, because I love Steph Curry. Um... (laughs) I'm having too much fun with this. In the more than 2,000 comments, viewers were baffled as they either shunned the claims or probed Alaric for further answers. One person commented, Only the Simpsons predictions has come true thus far. One user commented, I'm saving this stuff. I'm on to you. (laughs) I'm saving this stuff. I'm on to you. Another quipped, Source. Trust me, bro. A third said, Yeah, and on October 6, 2022, I'll have a girlfriend. I don't believe in time travel, a fourth said. One jokingly asked, if you can really predict the future, what am I going to have for breakfast tomorrow? Yeah, so somebody from the year 2671 has allegedly laid out these predictions, the first two of which um, 
did not pan out unless they did and we just don't know about it, unless it's being kept a secret. I don't know how they could keep the giant asteroid a secret, but hey, I'm willing to go with you that far. And then there's three predictions for this year. And personally, I think it's more likely that Nicolas Cage will play Nicolas Cage in a movie for the second time than it is that a 750-foot tsunami takes out all of San Francisco. But you're entitled to believe whatever you want. And on this show, we give everybody a serious hearing and we'll bring it all out. I did predict that we will find life on another planet this year, so if this is the way that it happens, then we will know that this guy on TikTok is a real-time traveler. But my guess is no. My guess is this is just a person on TikTok. But hey, I've been wrong before. It was a Tuesday. (laughs) And I could be wrong again. From time travel, we go to television for our next story. Something that our viewers always ask and always seem to enjoy and want more of. My review of a current television show. This one entitled The Patient that can be found on FX or Hulu. The Patient is a 10-episode limited series starring Steve Carell, Domino Gleason, Linda Emond, Lori Nemi, Andrew Leeds, and David Allen Greer. The Patient is a psychological thriller from the minds of Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg about a therapist, Alan Strauss, who's held prisoner by a patient, Sam Fortner, who reveals himself to be a serial killer. Sam has an unusual therapeutic demand for Alan, curb his homicidal urges. In order to survive, Alan must unwind Sam's disturbed mind and stop him from killing again, but Sam refuses to address critical topics like his mother Candace. Alone in captivity, Alan excavates his own past through memories of his old therapist Charlie and grapples with waves of his own repressed troubles, the recent death of his wife Beth, and the painful estrangement from his religious son Ezra. Over the course of his imprisonment, Alan uncovers not only how deep Sam's compulsions run, but also how much work he has to do to repair the rift in his own family. With time running out, Alan fights desperately to stop Sam before Alan becomes complicit in Sam's murder, or worse, becomes a target himself. The patient has scored 88% positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. And this is a series that I really enjoyed. I really did. Um, My wife and I watched it together over the course of a week or two. It's one of those shows where as it kind of builds toward a crescendo, you're trying to get ahead of the action and sort of predict how it's going to end. And you see a few ways that can happen, but you're not sure which one will play out. Um, It was well written. It was well acted. uh, It was very engaging. The guy that plays Sam Fortner, the serial killer, absolutely knocked it out of the park. And in my mind, it's one of the best performances that, that I've ever seen from Steve Carell. I'm a Steve Carell fan. I'm a huge fan of The Office. I I can quote almost every episode of The Office to you. And to see someone play Michael Scott and then also be able to play this role as Dr. Alan Strauss, um, incredible range. It's a psychological thriller. Uh, It keeps you on the edge of your seat. The episodes are short. It's not a long show. Episodes don't run an hour each. They're like 27 minutes or something. It's very bingeable. It's a show that held our attention. And on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 being, I'm never watching this again, why did I ever turn it on? And 5 being, this show was executed perfectly. I'm going to give it a 4.735 out of 5 stars. I really do. I give it a 4.735. It wasn't perfect. There's some, some room for improvement in my estimation and to my liking, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. 
that's a weird thing to say when it's such a, a dark topic. Uh, but what I mean is I thought it was done really well. I thought that the idea was a good idea. I thought that it was a show full of emotion. And without giving anything away and without any spoilers, I'll say that it was a show that I didn't predict all along the way. Things happened that kept me guessing, that kept me surprised. And I recommend that you view it. It's called The Patient. You can find it on FX or on Hulu. And email me after you watch it. I would love to know if you agree with me. Did you find this show as, as good as I did? Did you like it? Would you recommend it to others? Did you think like I did that Steve Carell did a phenomenal job? Like this is an award-winning type performance from Steve Carell, in my mind at least. I give it a 4.735 out of 5. And for our last story this week in the world of the paranormal, we go from television to lizard people. Yeah, 2023 is going to be our year. I'm just telling you, we're going straight from television to lizard people. From Michael Gary Scott to reptilians, because that's how we roll. People have been referencing sentient reptilian entities, sometimes humanoid, sometimes not, going back to some of the earliest written works and legends known to man. In more modern times, according to a survey done by the firm Public Policy Polling, approximately 4% of Americans believe lizard people are influencing world politics, with an additional 7% on the fence on this question. And that means up to 11% of our country believes in lizard people, or at least is open to it. That's over 36 million people, my babies. And I'm guessing that at least, I don't know, 15 or 20 of those people are listening to the show right now. I digress. So how did the idea of lizard people ruling the world start? To begin with, for those unfamiliar with our lizard overlords, which those listening to this show probably don't fit into that category much, probably you're aware. While there are a variety of versions to this conspiracy theory, the general notion is that a few different types of reptilian humanoids walk among us. Chief among these creatures are a type speculated to come from the Draco constellation, because apparently the lizard people knew their little corner of the galaxy would look vaguely like a serpent from Earth when connecting the dots during a certain part of Earth's history, and so went ahead and spent millions of years evolving appropriately on their home planet to match. The Draconians are apparently tall, winged reptilian humanoids who not only secretly rule over humans, but more overtly rule over other types of lizard people as well. As for those others, the second most prominent group widely held among adherents to this conspiracy are the shape-shifting human-reptilian hybrids. Naturally, thanks to the fact that the lizard people are secretly working to control humanity, many former and current prominent world leaders such as Queen Elizabeth II, R.I.P. Big Dog, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, along with celebrities like Angelina Jolie, definite lizard person, Betty White, R.I.P. Big Dog, Simon Whistler and Katy Perry are all known to be shape-shifting reptoids. As to why said reptoids wish to rule the world, there are a variety of reasons given, with the most prominent two being that they're here for our gold, and alternatively that they feed on negative energy from humans, particularly given off when they're afraid, angry, or just generally anxious. That sounds like some of y'all's mother-in-laws is what it, to me, is. I'm just saying, some of you have, not me, but some of you have mother-in-laws that uh, feed off negative energy. I just, it's just a factual, it, it's just real. I'm just keeping it 100 with you, like we do on this show. 
Thus, they wish to create an Orwellian world government system in order to more easily manipulate our collective emotions for their own sustenance. This now brings us to who actually first came up with the modern idea of these reptilian overlords in the first place. While, as noted, sentient reptilians of some form or another have seemingly been around in human legend for as long as we've been humaning, one of the earliest and most influential references of lizard people in more modern times can be found in Robert E. Howard's 1929 story The Shadow Kingdom, published in the pulp magazine Weird Tales. Not coincidentally, these beings are shockingly similar to the modern perception of lizard people. In a nutshell, the story involves ancient shape-shifting reptilian humanoids with elaborate underground abodes who work in the shadows to rule humanity, including via infiltrating various groups and using mind control to influence world politics. This and subsequent works by Howard would go on to popularize some version of these lizard people, including works by a close friend of his, H.P. Lovecraft. The concept caught on from here and has shown no signs of stopping in science fiction since. Noteworthy here for reasons we'll get to in a bit is one individual, mystic correspondent school founder Maurice Doriel, who would seemingly be inspired by Howard's lizard people when creating many written works for his followers, most notably the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Atlantean. Except in Doriel's case, he would use these science fiction characters to create a supposed real history of Earth that incorporates reptoids as factual beings. I've never heard the word reptoid before. I'm familiar with reptar, from Rugrats fame, and reptilians, but this article keeps saying reptoids. Uh, so I'm just going to keep reading it because, you know, that's what I do. Another notable incident that helped spread the idea of lizard people occurred in 1934 and 35 when one G. Warren Shufflet was looking for gold in California. To aid in his endeavor, Shufflet invented a device that he claimed used radio x-rays to see deep into the earth and was apparently able to be used to find precious metals like gold as well. Of course, his device didn't actually use x-rays, but rather used a common dowsing pendulum, as described in January 29, 1934 edition of the Los Angeles Times. Using this device, the Times piece reveals a rather astounding discovery made by Shuffle. Busy Los Angeles, although little realizing it in the hustle and bustle of modern existence, stands above a lost city of catacombs filled with incalculable treasure and imperishable records of a race humans further advanced intellectually and scientifically than even the highest type of present-day peoples. Shuffle himself goes on of the discovery. I knew I was over a pattern of tunnels, and I had mapped out the course of the tunnels, the position of large rooms scattered along the tunnel route, as well as the position of deposits of gold, but I couldn't understand the magnitude of it. Shuffle made a breakthrough, however, when he came across a Hopi Native American who went by the name Little Chief Greenleaf as well as L. Macklin. Shuffle claims Greenleaf told him about 5,000 years ago Hopi history speaks of lizard people who built vast underground cities in the region, recording their own history on gold tablets. Hearing this story, Shuffle connected the dots and believed that he had found one of those cities and could prove it because within the chamber he found, to quote, gold tablets with perfect corners, sides, and ends, scientific proof of the gold's existence. Of course, given that he was using nothing more than a dowsing pendulum, it's not really clear how he could have detected anything, let alone gold tablets hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth. And we're not really sure how claiming you found gold is scientific proof of actually finding gold. But he sure was happy to take investors' money to pursue the dig. On that note, with the story being published in newspapers across the country, Shuffle was able to both garner city support for the project in exchange for 50% of any gold found, as well as get sufficient money from investors to start excavating. Unfortunately for his investors, as often happens when you dig deep holes, 
The result is eventually encountering water with the project ultimately stopping at a depth of about 350 feet because of this complication. While Shuffle had thus successfully accomplished drilling a well, sadly he did not manage to find any buried treasure. As to what happened to him afterward, he doesn't appear to have used his radio x-ray device on any other projects and more or less disappeared from history other than it being recorded that he died in California in 1957. As to the Hopi legend he used to garner so much support for his project, it should be noted here that while this story is often used as support for the existence of lizard people, beyond the fact that no such tunnels were ever found, it is explicitly noted in accounts from Shuffled at the time that these were humans who simply used a lizard as their symbol. And indeed, while there's no known Hopi legend about lizard people, it was common for the Hopi to have clans that used animal names such as Bear Clan, a Spider Clan, and most pertinently to the topic at hand, there really was a Lizard Clan. As to the rest of the story concerning underground cities and technologically advanced people, there is no known reference to this in any surviving Hopi legend. Of course, given their history was passed down orally, much was lost before their stories started to be written down. That said, further raising questions about Shuffled's story is that there's no record of a Chief Greenleaf or L. Macklin in any surviving Hopi birth and death records. Of course, while extensive, these lists are not comprehensive, so it is possible Greenleaf really did exist. But, as with his supposed Hopi legend of these advanced lizard people, all we have to go on is Shuffled's word. Whether Shuffle was simply a con artist or he legitimately believed vast tunnels filled with gold existed under the city of Los Angeles isn't clear. Either way, his claims are occasionally used as proof of ancient lizard people inhabiting the Earth. Fast forward to 1976, where we have the 12th planet, and subsequent similar works by Zechariah Stitchin, where he purports that beings known as Anunnaki from the planet Nibiru came to Earth a half million years ago in order to acquire our, to quote, monoatomic gold, which they can use for traveling through dimensions, among other things. Thankfully for us humans who were used as slaves by the Anunnaki, this group ended up hightailing it off Earth because of a great flood that covered the planet. When the Anunnaki came back, they apparently were involved in the building of a variety of ancient structures such as the pyramids. Noteworthy here is that Stitchin's Anunnaki weren't necessarily reptilian, but as was Shuffled's story would later be folded into the lizard people conspiracy theory anyway. This finally brings us to the man of the hour and arguably the greatest driving force behind the modern lizard people conspiracy theory as well as perhaps the most successful professional conspiracy theorist of all time, David Von Ick. Ick was a former popular sportscaster for the BBC and prominent Green Party member. His life changed, however, around 1990 when he started feeling some invisible presence which physically led him to a book called Mind to Mind written by a psychic healer by the name of Betty Shine. Soon enough, he sought out Shine to see if she could shed a little light And that has to be intentional. He, he sought out Shine to see if she could shed a little light. Shine, shed a little light. That, has to, that is just magnificent writing, uh, whoever it was that wrote this article. I digress. On how he might heal his arthritis and what the deal was with his strange presence he was encountering. After a few visits, Shine allegedly told him on March 29, 1990, that Ick was placed on Earth to work as the instrument of the spirit world and they would be contacting him to use him as a conduit to help humanity. Shortly after this, the messages flooded in. In order to spare the Green Party the controversy he knew that would follow when he revealed to the world what the spirit realm was telling him, in 1991, Ick decided to leave said political party. 
He then held a press conference alongside his wife, Linda Atherton, and his girlfriend, Deborah Shaw, announcing to the world that he was, in fact, the son of Godhead, with Godhead described by Ick as infinite mind. Among other things, he would make a variety of bold predictions, such as that the world would experience a cataclysmic event in 1997, which would see such things as New Zealand disappearing into the sea. This would all culminate in the entire world ceasing to exist. He further revealed that all of this was told to him by spirit voices who were using him as a conduit to communicate to the people of Earth. While he'd expected controversy from these revelations, apparently the reality of people not only believing him, but actually mocking him quite openly across the country was too much at first for Ick. He stated, One of my very greatest fears as a child was being ridiculed in public. And there it was coming true. As a television presenter, I'd been respected. People came up to you in the street and shake your hand and talk to you in a respectful way. And suddenly overnight this was transformed into Ix another. I couldn't walk down any street in Britain without being laughed at. It was a nightmare. My children were devastated because their dad was a figure of ridicule. At one point shortly after his infamous announcement to the world, many dozens of teens even went so far as to gather in front of his house, continually chanting, We want the Messiah. Give us a sign, David. Despite it all, Ick soldiered on anyway, writing several astoundingly well-received books, such as The Truth Shall Set You Free, The Truth Vibrations, The Children of the Matrix, The Biggest Secret, The Book That Will Change the World, Alice in Wonderland and the World Trade Center, and Infinite Love is Only Truth, among many others, with the entire catalog having apparently sold a couple hundred thousand copies to date. On the side, Ick also sells merchandise, operates a surprisingly popular conspiracy theory website, and most lucratively of all frequently gives public talks in front of crowds of thousands, in one instance in Australia apparently grossing a whopping $102,000 in ticket sales at a talk in Melbourne. As for lizard people, they're at the center of Ick's vast conspiracy theory, which pretty much forges elements from just about every prominent conspiracy theory into one master theory to rule them all. Noteworthy is that much of the modern mythos surrounding lizard people Ick has channeled from the spirit realm bears shocking resemblance to the sci-fi stories that kicked off the whole lizard people idea in the first place, as well as seemingly borrowing from the, from the aforementioned the Emerald Tablets, as well as Stitchin's works, among others. Not completely unoriginal, Ick has come up with a number of his own elements to add to the narrative, including claiming that lizard people use the moon, which apparently is a spacecraft and interdimensional portal, to project a holographic reality to aid in controlling humans. In his own words, we are living in a dream world within a dream world, a matrix within the virtual reality universe, and it's being broadcast from the moon. Unless people force themselves to become fully conscious, their minds are the moon's minds. He later claimed that actually the rings of Saturn are where these signals originate, with the moon itself merely amplifying and projecting them onto the Earth. Which I'm not going to lie. Shape-shifting interdimensional lizard aliens invading Earth using mind-control virtual reality moon-sized spacecraft and many other awesome technologies to take over the world, I would watch that movie. Can we get someone to sum up Ick's books into one coherent trilogy, add some awesome characters, and maybe get the Wachowskis to direct? Of course, in Ick's version of things, it's not Keanu Reeves who will save the world, but rather himself, the son of the Godhead, via him revealing the truth of the world and getting everyone to love one another. As Ick states, Divide and rule is the bottom line of all dictatorships. Arab is turned against Jew, black against white, right against left. Unplugging from the matrix means refusing to recognize these illusory fault lines. We are all one. I refuse to see Jew as different from Arab, and vice versa. They're both expressions of a one, and need to be observed and treated the same. None is more or less important than the other. I refuse to see black people in terms that I would not see white, nor to see the left as I would not see the right. 
How could it be any different except when we believe the illusion of division is real? If we do that, the Matrix has us. He sums up in a speech in 2012, If we want a world of love and peace, we have to be loving and peaceful with everyone, even those we don't like. In the end, that is according to the spirit realm who is using Ick to communicate with us, the only way to defeat the lizard people. Starve them of our anxieties, our fears, our anger, and give them only the positive energy of love. So to sum up, lizard people in some form or another have been around seemingly as long as humans have been coming up with stories, with the modern incarnation mostly seeming to have been popularized by author Robert E. Howard, spreading through fiction from there and ultimately adapted, among other works, by others with this all, of this all culminating in the most prominent version of the lizard people story created by the son of the godhead himself, Britain's own David Ick. For full detail, see his many books which the lizard people freely allow him to publish despite the fact that the books reveal their ultimate secret plan in incredible detail and even out some of their most prominent members. So, that's lizard people. <laughs> that's reptilians in a nutshell. Um, some think of them as interdimensional beings. Some people say that they are demonic. Some people say they're from outer space. Um, some people use that term to literally mean reptilian beings that are not human, that can either take on the form of human and are shape-shifting, or who can possess and control humans. Some claim that uh, world leaders and celebrities are reptilians. And you can go down the rabbit hole on YouTube for like a day and a half. And you can watch all these videos where it is proven that some celebrity or world leader is a lizard person because their eyes are very, very green. And because uh, when you pause the video at a certain point, you catch a glimmer of an unnaturally long tongue coming out like a lizard. Or of their eyes flickering like a reptile. And there's the alleged proofs of how you know a lizard person. They're cold-blooded. Their, their blood pressure is very low. They have a high interest in outer space or science. They have very green eyes. They sometimes have red hair. You can find all this online. And I've heard of this theory before. It's kind of one of those conspiracy theories that is all-encompassing. It works together a bunch of other conspiracy theories. And at the base of it, it's a theory that a small group of elites are really pulling strings behind the scenes and running everything and trying to take over the world, are in control of things. And in this version of that conspiracy, it's a group that wants to control humanity because they are not like us. This is the first time that I'm ever hearing that uh, up to 11% of the American population is open to believing in lizard people. I thought it was much more fringe than that. That's news to me. And it's kind of become this catch-all phrase, lizard people, um, that those on the far right use to no longer even reference this particular conspiracy or actual literal lizards or actual literal demons or actual literal aliens. But instead, they use it as a catch-all phrase or a term to refer to a group of elite people, a cabal of people who are, are cold-hearted, who are not behaving in a human way who feed on negativity, who don't have the interest of the whole in mind, but instead their own interests. So what do you make of the theory of lizard people? Do you believe that there's these interdimensional beings that live underground, 
They take on the form of humans, these demonic beings or these aliens that are reptilian, that are working to control society, that are secretly involved in our government and the inner workings of, of our world. Do you believe that it's all science fiction? Do you believe that the truth is somewhere else? On the one hand, I don't buy into it. I just don't. It's a fun thing to think about. It would make a great book or a great movie. I don't buy into aliens being present to live underground that are actually like reptiles. I do believe there are demonic forces at work in our world. I do believe in a spiritual realm. I know that people like to refer to Zechariah Stitchin's work and talk about the Anunnaki. I know that people like to tie in this theory into uh, biblical texts and the things that we don't understand that are found within the scripture, such as the Nephilim and the Great Flood. But I don't buy into the whole of this theory. But on the other hand, is it really that big of a leap to believe that Dennis Rodman is a lizard person? <laughs> 2023 is going to be our year. What do you think about lizard people? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4. And I will read your thoughts on the air. If you believe in lizard people, listen to this show. If you think it's wild and wacky and a waste of time, listen to this show. We got something for everybody. We bring you the news that matters in only the way that we can. From a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 57. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, the Good Pods app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at In the Shed 4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some sports, and take a deep dive into one of history's most well-known feuds, the Hatfields versus the McCoys. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it! We sure did.